Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back to the guest podcast. I know we've been on a really long summer hiatus, but I'm very happy to announce that we are now back, at least for the time being. And we have a very special guest with us today because we've had so many podcasts recently that had to be done online because of COVID-19. But now we actually have someone with us here in person, which I'm very excited about. We are joined today by Mehidiam's Fate, who is from the Arab Institute for Women at the Lebanese American University in Beirut. Miriam, welcome Thank to you, Iceland <laughs> and welcome to uh, the guest program. Thank you, Thomas. It's so good to be here and to actually do things in person. Isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. So, you know, I'm just really, really glad that we can finally meet people in person. And I'm so glad that you're here. You've been here uh, for a week now, yes. almost, right? Yes. 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 So what have you been up to while you were here? Like, apart from the obvious, uh, you know, collaboration we had, what did you do when you were, you know, off work? <laughs> so I managed to visit certain uh, certain landmark places and I was in awe of, you know, the environment and uh, the sustainability of the environment, the access to resources, the water, you know, like the beauty of uh, the country mm -hmm. and like, Uh, for instance, I was I was so taken by the fact that, for instance, on the level of uh, like gender and the, the level of women's activism and women sustaining the environment, uh, we were told that there was this one woman who owned the the um, the waterfalls. Gutfoss, yes, the big one, yeah. Yes, and she uh, owned the land, and given that she owned the land, the government tried to negotiate with her back then, ages mm -hmm. ago in terms of like uh, trying to sustain other countries with electricity using right. the water and she refused and she went and spoke to parliament and her 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 single initiative uh, uh fighting for like the water and and uh, sustaining the environment and not mm -hmm. spoiling it uh, led to the government changing the decision simply because she threatened them and told them if you continue with this plan and you want to sell this land I'm going to throw myself in the, I'm going to kill well, myself. Yeah. And that's what the guy told us. While, and I, I thought, you know, like sometimes single acts are very important. And look what's happening now around mm -hmm. the world, you know, like uh, we're losing like climate change and everything that's happening. Had we had more of that character, you know, right. maybe things would have been better. And then I look back at my country and the fact that we up until now have no electricity, we have no fuel. We have a, a shortage in water. We have not preserved the environment. Right. And this is very gendered, as you might well know. So like, it's it's very impressive to see how one woman and the fact that she might have like killed herself led this whole government to back up and to like mm -hmm. comply with what she wanted. So it was, it was this was very interesting for oh. me. <laughs> wow. But, but also uh, now you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, uh, How, how how things are in Lebanon at the moment. I think I want to return to exactly what it is that you do when you're not here in Iceland. So you're the director of the Arab Institute for Women at something called the Lebanese American University. Can you just, for all the listeners out there who in this moment are thinking, is there an American university in Lebanon? <laughs> Can you just explain how that came about and what that is? Yeah, so uh, the Lebanese American University uh, changed a lot until it became a full-fledged university. It was an all-girls college, a school college, and then it moved to become a full-fledged university. Okay. 
1973, to honor this heritage of like uh, concentrating on women's education and girls' education, the Institute was founded. We were founded in 1973, uh, and we work at the intersection of academia and activism. So we okay. try as much as we can to bridge the gap between research and academic work and activism on okay. the ground. How was the, the founding of the university? That was a then, you know, a collaboration between American and, Leban uh, and the Lebanese government or how? Uh, uh, not really. Um, basically, there were missionaries who came to Lebanon and founded several universities. They started off as schools okay. like the American University of Beirut and our university, the Lebanese American University, the um, American Girls School. I can get you the, the details. Sure. Uh, maybe we'll check them mm -hmm. out. And you but, can... but it started out as a school for girls originally. Yes. Okay. It started out as a school for girls, whereby uh, girls from all over the Arab world used to come and like uh, study here in, uh, in, Le in Lebanon, in Beirut. And then it uh, moved to become a college and then uh, a, a full-fledged university. And uh, so basically it was founded by uh, American missionaries. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lady called Sarah Huntington-Smith. She was the one who came uh, and she put the cornerstones of what we know now as the Lebanese American University. Okay, so the Arab Institute for Women within this university Uh, was that there from the beginning? No. I because this is this was a girls' school, so you know, uh, you you know, you you think that this was like sort of a core of the university from the very beginning, but it was not. So uh, it was not there simply because the university started off educating girls, and yeah. then when the when the university decided to become co-educational, mm -hmm. so they started accepting boys as well as girls. Uh, the institute was founded to honor this heritage of right. girls' education. Okay. So we were founded in 1973. Before that, uh, uh, we didn't have men in the college or okay. in the school. So it was all girls. Mm -hmm. And then because we started accepting men to honor, as I said, that heritage, the mm -hmm. uh, institute was founded. And it's been there since 1973. Wow. Okay. So what was... Uh, you know, apart from honoring this heritage uh, uh, since, since since it was founded in '73, what was sort of the main mission of the of of the institute at 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 the time it was founded? You know, going forward, what 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 was the purpose? So basically, the purpose was to work on uh, um, like it was just the director alone who, who, who okay. was running the whole show. It was and just so one person. It was one person, then they became two, then they became three. So it started off as uh, an institute that reports on what's happening in the Arab world. And uh, it talks about like the importance of women's rights and all that mm -hmm. way ahead of its time. And then after a, a, a cup, there was an assistant helping the director. And then mm -hmm. they founded a journal called Ar-Raida. It was a small pamphlet. Ar-Raida. Ar-Raida. Yeah. It means yeah. the pioneer. Okay. And the Ar-Raida was, was brought about in 1976. Okay. And it started off as a small pamphlet reporting on what the Institute has done. So it talked about, for instance, we were started off by... Uh, Of, uh, a fund from the Ford Foundation. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the founding of the Institute and a bit about what it aims to do. And step by step, Raida started reporting on what's happening in the Arab world, wow. what's happening everywhere. And then it mushroomed and it became like it became more 
and more specialized. And in the 90s, we had a special file, so it became thematic, whereby we talk about special issues right. and we do a special file. And now it's um, it's semi-academic, so it has it also works at the intersection, just like the Institute of Academia and Activism, whereby we we have academic, purely academic articles. We have uh, like interviews, we have thematic discussions, mm-hmm. we have reports. And this is all in English and in Arabic. It's in English. There are certain issues whereby we got uh, funding to translate it into Arabic. Okay. We we work in English and Arabic on all the projects that right. we do and all the programs. Mm-hmm. But sometimes our research is published in English and Arabic. Sometimes okay. it's published only in English. It depends okay. if there's uh, funding for translation right, right. or not. Uh, but Ra'ida is mostly in English with certain issues when we find the funding translated into okay, Arabic. Okay. And uh, for those out there who are interested in reading more about this journal or actually reading this journal, you can go to alraidajournal.com, yeah. right? And there, you you can actually you can freely access every single issue going back to 1976. Uh, yes, is that correct? Yes, it's correct. Simply because for the 40th anniversary of Ar-Raida, we decided to use our own budget to basically mm-hmm. make all issues digitized. Wow! So we digitalized all the issues and created a platform whereby all these issues are there and available for free. So, so for those who are interested in women's issues in the Arab world, this is like you know an absolute go-to source, yes, right? Yes. Yes, simply because, like, exactly, it addresses, it's true that the Institute is based in Lebanon, but our our outreach is regional. So we try, via Raida, to talk about all Arab countries, if mm-hmm. we can, or most Arab countries, if we can, and shed light on what's happening there, either in terms of the thematic files or in terms of, like, articles in general. And we try as much as we can to publish for, mm-hmm. like, young scholars and aspiring young uh, uh, academics, right. as well as we, 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 uh, we'd like, we also hear the activists' voice, so activists write about the projects that they're doing or give opinion pieces or testimonies, mm-hmm. etc. Over and above that, we try as much as we can also to encourage our own students at the Lebanese American University within the context of any course that they're doing to publish on gender and to uh, publish it in a ride. Okay, that's amazing. Um, and... How how is uh, at 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 the moment? How is the Arab Institute for Women working? You know, at the moment with the situation as it is in Lebanon right now. Yeah. So uh, you know, um, we're we, we're basically uh, uh, available in Lebanon, and our presence is in Lebanon, even though our 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 outreach is regional. So, uh, as you might well know, there's a huge economic crisis in Lebanon. Uh, the crisis was compounded as a result also of the Beirut blast, you know, that happened over and above that. There's, there was COVID, etc. So, we're trying as much as we can to... So, we had previous projects that we, we were working on that were not directly related to any of these crises because we didn't know this was right. coming up. But uh, as soon as the crisis happened, we're we're basically part, for instance, of... Um, a, a charter of demands that basically uh, uh, came about as a result of the Beirut blast and the fact that aid was not uh, uh, gendered and uh, uh, we tried as much as we can to influence uh, with this charter, being a member of the mm-hmm. charter, the um, the mainstreaming of gender in every relief and recovery that's happening. Right. And this, as I said, this charter, as I previously mentioned to you, this charter was 
peer-headed by UN women, but like right. a civil society organization. Tell me the name of the charter again. I'm sorry. It's, it's called... It's uh, called the Charter of Demands by Feminist Activists and Women's Rights Organizations in Lebanon, a Gender Disaster Response Plan. Okay, so uh, basically, uh, as I said, the Charter of Demands was uh, a charter of demand that was put forward by feminist activists and women's rights organizations okay. in Lebanon. And the reason why it came about was to create a gender disaster response plan and how to learn from past, uh, like past mistakes that we did whereby uh, uh, we didn't intervene to mainstream mm -hmm. gender. And it's made up of very many uh, feminist right. organizations and non-governmental. So wait, so this charter of demands was in place before the Beirut, the Beirut blast? No. no, no, no. This came as a response. Yes, that. simply right. because like aid was not gendered and exactly. there was no gender mainstreaming okay, at okay. all related yeah. to, let's say, aid, SRHR, violence against women. The fact that the areas that were uh, uh, affected the most were areas where marginalized groups mm. uh, uh, reside, etc. So uh, what I'm indirectly trying to say is that over and above the projects, the general projects that we do, of course, we are uh, uh, trying as much as we can to Uh, uh, influence what's happening mm -hmm. on the ground in terms of gender other than mainstreaming gender and like right. talking about let's say uh, the pandemic and how it affected women more than men and showcasing that and the way mm -hmm. like violence against women skyrocketed all over the yeah. world and including the Arab world and Lebanon in specific we try as much as we can to showcase what's happening on the ground exactly. as a result of the blast as a result of the pandemic there are many changes also happening as a result of the economic of crisis can you maybe give a couple of examples of uh, in terms of how i mean the the beirut blast it intersected at the time of covid basically yeah. uh, and then it intersects with gender it's like this tri you know like a triangulated you know disaster basically yeah. can you give a couple of examples of 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 some of the gendered issues that like really came to light at at, at, at the time that you noticed at the in institute that required you know intervention so uh, we intervened with other organizations right. like on a if you want on a theoretical level in terms okay. of like our expertise and what mm -hmm. should be done yeah. but there are many grassroots organizations that yes. were working on the ground that mushroomed so like unfortunately the 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 the, the bulk of the work that was done in terms mm -hmm. of relief reconstruction and all was was spearheaded by civil society organizations gendered or not gendered Like uh, uh, the, the 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 active civil society organizations were the ones that pushed things forward. Like, for instance, there was an organization that came about as a result of the blast that addressed issues related to uh, 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 queer relief and everything related to uh, uh, the LGBTIQ community simply because the area that was hit was mostly an area that was one of the areas was like a, um, a safe haven where the LGBTIQ okay. community lived. There were other places the where... The blast happened in uh, LGBTQI, you know, based No, community. not really, but no. like the area, right. like it, the, the Maram Khayil, Jemaizi, those, those are specific areas where the, next to the port of Beirut where okay. that were very affected. And those areas are, are concentrated There's a concentration of marginalized groups, okay. uh, female heads of household, elderly women, uh, the LGBTIQ community, refugees, migrant domestic workers. Okay. They all are concentrated in there. In that area. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, like like normal uh, citizens as well. But sure. what I mean is 
like regular citizens uh, fare much better than marginalized groups who are vulnerable, you know? Of course, yeah. So, um, so as I said, we intervened on the level of like theory and how we can like mainstream and like put our expertise in mm-hmm. mainstreaming gender in terms of like the, the relief and recovery, etc. But as I said, there were specific organizations that were leading on a lot of other initiatives, like, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, uh, uh, organizations that worked on uh, GBV specifically and worked with uh, uh, with women um with women survivors started helping out in terms of relief so they they stopped everything so that they could do the relief work mm-hmm. that was needed that uh, unfortunately was not uh, done by the government there no. was a lot of shortage in terms of, of services etc yeah, yeah. yeah okay so n- i mean now you um, you're going you're going back to lebanon tomorrow this is your <laughs> this is your last day here um going back to the institute how are you how are you continuing this 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 work as you return so you know uh, as i said we had previously planned projects that have specific deliverables that we would be continuing right. working on but now i personally think we need to apply for funds or work on uh, pressing concerns that are needed now so as you might well know when the crisis hit a lot of people are going to be losing their job and have lost their jobs and esqua had estimated a huge number of jobs that would be lost by women mm-hmm. and then uh, women as we might well know work and the in- a lot of women are concentrated in the informal sector that's basically discriminatory simply because they're not counted sure. they're not given their rights etc and not too long ago we worked on a, a project that addresses issues related to working women and parental leave So what we're going to be doing is like trying to see what are the needs on the ground and what are now pressing projects as a result, like we look back and we see those those crises happened, they were compounded, they affected women. What are projects that are needed and we need to apply to those grants so that we can implement those projects? Are there projects uh, that are needed related to life skills and like engaging like uh, rural women or marginalized groups Mm -hmm. or refugees, etc. So we need to really think in terms of like other than the deliverables that we have, what are the pressing needs on the ground? And Mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, there are many pressing needs, but one of them also is related to like... uh, like work and like encouraging mm-hmm. uh, uh, women to find jobs and because they've lost a lot of their jobs. And uh, ASQA not too long ago issued a report that said like around 75% of the Lebanese population are going to be maybe yeah. below the poverty lines. Right. Yeah. So more than half of Lebanon's pop- population is going to be under the poverty line yes. in, in the coming years. Yes, unfortunately. Right. Is this as a direct result of the you know, of the Beirut blast? Or is this just, you know, uh, uh, mm. you know? I mean, this, you know, th- th- things have been a long time coming. I mean, things are never just the result of a single So you single see, event. Um, uh, it's been a compounded crisis. So we right. had a revolution and, uh, in 2017. In yeah. There was uh, the October revolution. Right. There was a lot of hope in terms of like toppling down the... Uh, uh, the corrupt system and it was a a, a feminist revolution par excellence like women's rights uh, Mm -hmm. were like uh, openly discussed women with men worked hand in hand on everything related to organizing to upholding everything related to gender rights there were like many demands that feminists uh, put forth on uh, and were were, and women and men were demonstrating all over Lebanon so it was a nationwide demonstration a revolution or uprising, whatever you want to call it. But uh, after the revolution uh, 
uh, well, well, the revolution was taking place and then uh, COVID-19 came, so it dwindled. And uh, like we were forced to stay at home, lockdowns, people were like uh, contracting the disease left, right and center. People were dying. It was it's all it was all over the world, a global pandemic, but it affected Lebanon also very much. With the revolution also came the devaluation of the Lebanese lira. So step by step, the Lebanese lira right. became so devaluated to the extent that uh, uh, Prior to me coming here on Friday, before the founding of the gov- the before the new government came mm-hmm. about, uh, the the $1 was 19,000 in the black market. Now it has like gone down as a result. 19,000 lira. 19,000 yeah. Lebanese liras wow. for $1. Now it's yeah. gone down, if I'm not mistaken, to 16,000 okay, or okay. 14,000. I'm not sure. But what I'm indirectly trying to say is that COVID with the economic crisis, uh, coupled with the Beirut blast, all and now, now the huge problem that we're suffering from is the debilitating economic crisis, whereby uh, uh, people have lost their money. Their money is in the banks. The banks had, uh, like, uh, the banks uh, lent the government the money, and the government now is like, like the the, the, st- the state is basically uh, uh, like bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And the situation is very bad. So what I'm indirectly trying to say is that those compounded crises have led to uh, uh, what what we're facing today, a huge economic crisis that right. has impact. And as you might well know, in all emergencies, women are affected more. Mm-hmm. In all crises, women are affected more. So the, the most vulnerable are the ones who are mostly affected. So that's why... Uh, uh, there, there should be a response plan that takes into consideration the needs of women and girls and marginalized groups. Of course. And um, Miriam, I want to return a little bit to uh, um, <laughs> your time here in Iceland because you've been teaching uh, you've been teaching the guest students here for three days in a row. First you did uh, you did a presentation on the history of the Lebanese women's movement, then you, uh, you screened a, doc- a documentary about the same topic, Women in Time. And on Wednesday, you had a, a workshop on the Sedao Convention. Yeah. That's what it's called. Yes, yeah, yes, the yes, CEDAW, yes. yeah it's the Convention the on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against right, Women. Right. And I spoke also about UN Security Council 1325. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yesterday, we had uh, uh, a meeting, sort of a meet and greet with you and the and the staff here at Guest, where where uh, the Guest program, we presented to Mihiriam sort of what we're about, what our mission is, and she did the same. And I want to ask you here if there was any sort of like overlap or synergies you saw between our two institutes as sort of a a, base, a basis for for possible future collaboration that has to do with some of these very important issues we've been talking about. So what's interesting about your program is the fact that it's it covers a lot of countries. So you get to I got got get to got to meet students from all over the world, really, and there were Arab students as well. What I found we could work on together, of course, is the fact that we have uh, uh, similar courses to yours in terms of mm-hmm. like a program that we have called Gender and Development and Humanitarian Assistance, and it's right. jointly run. It's 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 the program of the institute, but the continuing education program helps us in terms of the platform that they offer mm-hmm. us to offer these courses. So they're courses that are targeting 
uh, mid-career professionals who are interested in gender. So I, I know from the students that they've learned about gender-responsive budgeting and they've learned exactly. about gender in development. And those are very similar courses that mm -hmm. we have, but with an Arab, uh, like they're, they're general courses, but the examples are from the Arab region. Right. We also tailor-made specific courses on Let's say UN Security Council 1325, mm -hmm. the importance of this document in terms of like everything related to mm -hmm. women, peace and security, women having a, 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 having decision making powers, a seat on the table, etc. Mm -hmm. We had also um, we, we prepared like uh, uh, one of the modules on national action plans that like countries have done in terms of and in specific simply because we're based in Lebanon. We had something done on the National Action Plan of Lebanon for the UN Security Council 1325 that was spearheaded by the National Commission for Lebanese Women right. with a lot of other partners, ministries, UN agencies, mm -hmm. academic institutions, NGOs, etc. So uh, uh, there are many synergies whereby we could like uh, create courses together. Mm -hmm. We could like give... Um, Uh, benefits from the expertise like for instance if you have an expert that's good at gender responsive budgeting and we lack that expertise maybe we can like uh, 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 lend on your expertise and maybe like join the courses virtually or uh, uh, mm -hmm. exchange material sure. readings give you recent studies etc mm -hmm. so that you can like we, we can have this transnational exactly. uh, exchange. Because what I'm also thinking is, because now you mentioned that, you know, you have um, experts or instructors with you, you know, that teach these programs you have at the... We commissioned at, them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, at at uh, uh, at the Institute. And um, because at the guest program, one of the things I think we counter every single year pedagogically with having a group that is so transnational is that inevitably you will at one point during the five months the students are here, um, people will ask, students will ask, well, what do I need this knowledge for? Mm. You know, um, you know, a person from, uh, let's take an example, like let's say a person from uh, uh, Serbia might ask, well, why do I need to know about uh, uh, the feminist history of Ghana, you know, mm. why does that benefit me, you mm. know, and, 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 and I think that's like the core of what transnational knowledge exchange means. It is trying to, trying to understand how the experiences of women or feminists elsewhere in the world uh, touches on your experience or how it, how, you know, the synergies with that and how it overlaps. Uh, and which is why I'd be very, very, you know, e excited to try to do an Erasmus staff exchange with the instructors that you commission, you know, to come here and teach in the guest program. Uh, because I think the Arab experience and, the, you know, I think there's so much we can learn from the Arab women's movement, how you've done things uh, and how, you, how, how you've expanded the, the feminist operation in that part of the world. And I think that's something that is you know, universally, uh, you know, interesting and universally useful to feminists elsewhere as well. You know, there are two things uh, that came to mind when you were talking. Uh, one very important thing, the value of what we did also is like right. documenting that. Mm -hmm. The fact that 
we managed to document via Ar-Raida and via this documentary that we did, the women's rights mm-hmm. movement since its inception until 1975. And also within the context of a project that we're working on with the Institute for Development Studies in at the University of Sussex, where eventually, after this this project uh, related to countering the backlash and like movement building and the women's movement, we're going to create a documentary that builds on Women in Time and basically talks about the women's rights movement from Mm -hmm. 1975 at the start of the war until now what has happened. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, would be a very important uh, piece of of, uh, like work that would basically leave the knowledge available for generations to come. Mm-hmm. So all the women that were interviewed in the documentary that I screened to the students are women that have passed away. They're, they're, they're women that have paved the way for us to be here yeah. today. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In terms of like Lebanon, especially because it's on Lebanon. Another thing I realized while talking to the students is that we all suffer, as we might well know, from the same ills. So a lot of them spoke about their countries and about what they're suffering from. And we realized that Sometimes, even when there are good laws, the misapplicability in our part of, mm. like in the countries that all we belong to, are the problems that are like keeping women back, etc. Mm-hmm. Et Over and above that, the fact that patriarchy infiltrates all aspects of our lives, especially in countries that are based on religious laws, in countries where there's a lot of corruption, in countries where there's no decision-making powers for women in terms of like political participation, in terms of Mm -hmm. like where there are no reserved seats for women, whereby women are running the show along with men, etc. So we realized a lot of things. We realized that we all suffer from GBV in in our Mm. respective countries. We all suffer from lack of implementation of laws related to GBVs, early marriage, Mm -hmm. a a lot of other things. So what I'm indirectly trying to say is that the students realize that our contexts are very similar. Exactly. And what we need is uh, accountability Mm -hmm. and implementation of specific laws and also Uh, uh, enlightenment of like the importance of shedding all those like preconceived ideas and our patriarchal attitudes mm-hmm. and working on like pushing things forward and a lot of them mentioned the importance also of like engaging men in the fight against uh, that exactly so i think i mean i could go on with this forever but <laughs> i but i think you know i want to i i want to just conclude that there's definitely a very fertile basis for a future collaboration here between our two institutes and yesterday we also talked about like you said uh, you know the the uh, the formulation of new courses you know we have a lot of 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 experience doing online courses through the edX platform that's something i'd really like to collaborate about um And there are so many other things, but I think for now we are like uh, <laughs> we're past the allotted time for a, for a podcast. So uh, I just want to end here by saying, you know, thank you so much for for coming to Iceland. It was a very long time coming. I think it's taken two years, two years <laughs> from when we decided, oh, we want Miriam to come, and then COVID came and all of that. And I just want to give like a huge shout out here to. Uh, to Erasmus, uh, because they really don't get enough credit. Erasmus is ha, has been so wonderful and and flexible. Uh, Erasmus at the international office here in Iceland, they really went above and beyond to make sure that you could that you could get make here. It. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that is really really wonderful. And I wanted this podcast. The reason why I have it on the last day of your visit here is because I wanted it to be. Uh, 
uh, a documentation or sort of something to give witness to how important it was that you that you got here. So <laughs> so I hope that you're listening to this at the international <laughs> office. And, you know, I just want you to know that your efforts really paid off. It's been a wonderful <laughs> week here. It's been great to have Miriam with us. And just thank you so much for, for being on the podcast <laughs> thank today. Thank you so much. And I just want to thank uh, the university for all the support and also the office of uh, the international uh, student, uh, the international exchange as well that also facilitated me coming. Thank you so much. And everyone have a great weekend.